Welcome to Dog Talk and Kitties 2. I'm Tracy Hotchner. I love dogs and cats and the people who care about them. I'm here every week with authors and experts to expand our appreciation and understanding of the animals that share the planet with us. To hear earlier episodes of this show and download podcasts of other informative Pet Talk radio shows I co-host with top veterinarians and experts, please go to RadioPetLady.com. Dog Talk is a production of Pet Media Inc., which is solely responsible for its content. The Radio Pet Lady Network also produces the Dog Film Festival, which celebrates the love between dogs and their people and the rescue groups that bring them together. With a grant from the nonprofit Petco Foundation, I'm taking the first festival to dog lovers in cities across the country. I'll be back in New York City with the second annual festival, October 15th at Symphony Space. All the information is at dogfilmfestival.com. This show is brought to you with the generous support of Waruva, a privately owned pet food company that uses people food to make food for cats and dogs in their family's human food facility. Pouches of their cats in the kitchen, their more economical BFF, best feline friend, and all varieties of canned Waruva for cats and dogs are made with the same care and specifications used to make food for people. Waruva's owners want to feed your pets and their own dogs and rescued kitties, Webster, Rudy, and Vanessa, for whom the company is named, with ingredients that are good enough for people to eat. I have some wonderful people with me here today. Cindy Smith is the co-founder of Wings of Rescue. They have flown thousands of dogs to new homes. Such a wonderful nonprofit organization. Kathy Nimmer will be here with her book, Two Plus Four Equals One, celebrating the partnership of people with disabilities and their assistance dogs. And then we have Tony Angel here with his book, The House of Owls from Yale University. It's a beautiful book. Cindy, welcome to the show. Well, thank you very much. Let's talk about Wings of Rescue. I, you know, knew of another organization that flies six or eight or ten dogs at a time. But you founded Wings of Rescue with, I guess, a bigger vision, or you certainly have have moved mountains with with airplanes. Tell a little bit about how Wings of Rescue got got invented or born. Well, um, Yehuda Netnell and I are co-founders of Wings of Rescue, and it's actually Yehuda has the the vision of uh, doing things bigger and. Uh, at the time, he was flying about 30 pets at a time in his Piper Malibu uh, jet prop. And we have now grown into an organization that will fly at a minimum 60 pets at a time. And we're able to do this with our flagship. It's a Pilatus PC-12, and it's perfect for what we do. So me not being so so aircraft savvy, talk a little bit about that airplane. I love you talk airplane talk or oh, the Pilatus thing, and it's perfect. What is it? How is it different? I mean, before you said a jet prop, I'm like, oh, okay, so is that like a jet that also has propellers in case the jet engine fails? So I'm, I'm going to be your unwashed masses who are like, huh? Oh, it's got two wings and it flies? Tell me more. Yeah, the, the Pilatus is probably every pilot's dream airplane. No uh, kidding. Geez. Yeah, they're they're so stable and they're so strong, and they have a really long range, um, about 1,200 miles without stopping, and it's fast. Uh, we uh, cook along at about 285 knots, which is a little over 300, 310 miles per hour, and we've taken all but three of the seats out. There's the pilot, the co-pilot, and one seat uh, 
for a handler if necessary. And so we can, we can fit about a hundred small crates in this airplane. Wow. And it, it has a cargo door in the back that, that raises up, which makes loading very easy. And it's just perfect for what we do. Um, it's a single engine turbine aircraft. So it has a jet engine with a propeller and it's our flagship and we love her. And she's working very hard for us, saving a lot of dogs and cats. That's really cool. So let's still back up to Yehuda. And so here's a person who says, I know I can fly dogs and cats probably too, I'm guessing, from places where nobody wants to give them a home to places where there are empty homes, empty nests, looking for a dog or a cat. That's a big leap from that to I'll have one smaller airplane and then I'll get every pilot's dream airplane. How does one one make that happen? It has we've been growing exponentially and it's just a matter of reaching out, learning, um, and finding where these pets are wanted. We get calls every day from our receiving partners. Our kennels are empty. Please bring us dogs. Please bring us cats. And, uh, we not only use our Pilatus, we also charter an even larger plane. It's called a Metroliner. And it's a cargo plane, and we can fit 160 to 170 small crates. So it, it can carry about three times the the number of crates that the Pilatus can. And uh, for our Freedom uh, airlift this year, uh, one of the flights we did is we chartered the Metroliner, and we flew uh, 133 small dogs from the Van Nuys Airport in the Los Angeles area to Morristown, New Jersey. I'll and be darned. They went to uh, St. Hubert's Animal Welfare Center in New Jersey. And that's funny. Isn't Morristown the home of the seeing eye? Just, that's just an yeah. interesting coincidence. It's where the seeing yeah. eye um, guide dogs does their breeding and training and, and pairing up with people. Um, so yeah. there you are in Van Nuys. How do, you, how do you go about finding, collecting those pets that are overflowing in shelters where they have to euthanize for space? Do you have close connections in the county shelter system in the places where you draw from? Yes, we do. We work a lot with the ASPCA and also our sending shelters have volunteers and rescue coordinators that uh, will pull the dogs that know what our receiving rescue uh, is looking for. And it's, it's a lot of a lot of boots on the ground that help us out to accomplish one of these flights. Well, each time you've referred to small crates, small crates, small crates, what happens to your medium and large dogs? Do they not, are they not part of your, your mission? Oh yes. Yes. We do have uh, other receiving organizations uh, in the Pacific Northwest that love the larger dogs. Uh, We have, transported Great Danes. We wow. transported an English Mastiff that weighed oh 165 God. pounds. So it's not just the small dogs. Um, it just so happens that on the East Coast, small dogs are in demand, whereas in the Pacific Northwest, Washington, Idaho, Montana, the bigger dogs are in demand. More outdoor kind of living, let's say, more mountain right. living. So you're spread quite widely geographically in terms of where you're you're bringing to and drawing from because that's, you know, New Jersey and Washington state. Those are obviously very different kind of communities. How did you, how, what, how did the first dog get flown? I mean, was this on a seat next to Yehuda and he goes, gee, if I'm taking one, I could take a hundred. 
mean, how does it go from the germ of an idea to trying to, you say, growing exponentially, but where, where, what, is, what is driving the growth other than need and desire? How do, how do you manage it on the end of making this work in terms of practicalities of planning, of financing, of gassing up the planes and so forth? Well, Wings of Rescue, we are a nonprofit organization, and we do rely on donations to keep the plane flying. Uh, again, there is a demand. Relocation works to, to save these pets that are in danger of being put down simply for space. And uh, again, it's, it's a word of mouth thing, and it seems like wildfire. It's just growing what we're doing, and we're hearing more from receiving organizations in the Pacific Northwest. And of course, we're hearing more and more from sending organizations in Southern California. And the, the two just meet up and we coordinate it all. We, we do all the flight coordinating ourselves and it just works. What, what is your, did you have a background as some kind of a dispatcher or did, do you see the world in, in a spreadsheet in your mind? I mean, that's, that's not a, a skill that one just gets born with, right? I mean, you have to develop it and maybe have had it from another career. Well, pilots, for one, are pretty very prepared. We have to be. We have to do our planning for, for weather, et cetera, on I flights. And, so- again, we started out smaller. We just started out with one plane. And now we've grown to a fleet of about 20 volunteer pilots in their planes. Oh. And we have evolved also using spreadsheets and Google Docs and a lot of communication between uh, Rick Browdy, who is our one of our flight coordinators, myself, and Yehuda. So we talk a lot. We all talk basically daily in, in addition to emails and texts. So communication is the key. So how often do you have wings in the air with dogs on board? About uh, three flights a week, minimum. Wow! And, uh, you know, you, you you speak about loving this plane and speaking to, of her as she like a boat, which is the proper terminology. I guess you're a pilot, but you didn't sort of talk about that, are you? Uh, you must Yes, be. I am a pilot. Uh, yes. And is, and is that, was that a hobby of yours, a profession of yours? You know, I had always been a, a white-knuckle flyer when I was younger, and then in 2003, I went up in a small plane and just wasn't all that terrified anymore. And I thought, well, I want to learn how to do this. So I'll be darned. got my pilot's license, bought a plane. And it's after a while, you know, you, there are a lot of ratings you can obtain as a pilot and, but you need a reason to fly. Right. And Good point. I wanted a, a purpose. There's just no, it's just doesn't accomplish anything just to fly around in the sky. I wanted to, do something with my plane. And so my plane is considerably smaller. I can fit 18 small crates in it. And my, my range is, she's a lot slower. And so I was flying from Livermore to Bakersfield every Saturday, uh, picking up puppies or dogs or whatever for my local rescues here in the Bay area. But, and that's how I met Yehuda. We were both doing the same thing and it's it's a small world in rescue, and we met up and just thought there's a bigger and better way to do this. So more Wings efficient. Rescue was born. More efficient, exactly. And also more life saving. I mean, you have a much better feeling instead of just flying to Catalina for lunch. You're actually taking dogs who have no chance of a home or even maybe living to people that are eager for them. That's a lot better than. Than a wasteful lunch, right? In a way, I mean, oh, it's got to feel exactly. incredible. It's got to feel so cool. 
So yeah. I, I've just I've in, in talking to the directors of various shelters around the country, it seems like the really successful ones, the ones who are doing such a great job at working spay neuter in their area and also promoting the concept of adoption, they often do have empty empty cages themselves. And one of them up in up in I want to say Portland, but I could be forgetting, they're importing them from Hawaii. So I feel like I got to run back to my notes and find out who that person was and let you bring him some dogs right here from the USA because they were importing, <laughs> you know, medium to large dogs from yeah. Hawaii. You can imagine the challenge of that trip. I mean, I'm, right. I'm sorry for the Hawaiian dogs that they don't have a, a, you know, a willing home, but gosh, from from northern or southern California to to the northern, the northwest seems like a more logical trip. Do you, so what you find is that you hear or I should say a, a shelter or rescue, learns what you're doing, and they get in touch and say, hi, we have a lot of dogs. Could you take some? Is it just as simple as that? Uh, I wish. Um, it is it is a lot of work. As I mentioned, we have a lot of boots on the ground, and it's really our receiving shelters that dictate what type right. of pets right. they, can, they can adopt out. Uh, mm-hmm. So... We're just we're just the middle middleman, so to speak, the middle plane. Yes, um, we are providing the transport. Uh, unfortunately, we don't get to pick the dogs that Correct. get flown, and it's that's that's between the sending shelter and the receiving shelter. But we always try and um, promote the the pit bulls and the chihuahuas because unfortunately they are the two most euthanized breeds is that in our fact? shelters. Wow, yeah, just generally it is. So they're the most overbred. I mean, there's too many of them, and therefore they're put to sleep, not from any fault of their own. They're just too many. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, there's those breed-specific laws against pit bulls, which nobody's very happy about. Maybe on some level, emotionally, it's almost better that you not be the chooser, because then your guts would be torn out every single time. Oh, my God, I'm leaving the black and white one, and I have to take the tan one, and what am I going to do? And Right? I mean, it would, you know, you would see those pleading eyes and think, I could have been the person that let you on board or not it's not up to you so mm-hmm. you're you're really the enabler of of that trip without having to go eeny meeny miny mo mm-hmm. yeah it, it is gut-wrenching going into the shelters and uh leaving the ones behind because yeah. you you know that they're really really good dogs they're highly adoptable it's just we already have three or four pit bulls on the flight and just can't take one more yep which would you say of, of your of your sending shelters, which is the one that, that most frustrates you in terms of, God, there's a lot of nice animals here. This is crazy or criminal or terrible or something. As, as far as what breed or? No, or just shelter? quantity. Yeah, which shelters oh. in what areas seem to be the most overwhelmed, which would mean to my mind that it's the areas in which spay-neuter is not, is not being done successfully. Because so many areas where spay-neuter has been well sold, if you will. They don't have this problem of the constant flow of unwanted animals. Right. It's it's Southern California in general, Bakersfield, Los Angeles. Uh, the pet overpopulation is due to several factors. It's just the sheer number of people in those areas right. and the ones that do not spay and neuter their pets, unwanted litters, etc. And another reason is our very nice weather we have in California. The, right. the pets have an extra long breeding season, whereas in the Pacific Northwest, Montana, Washington, it just gets cold and the pets don't breed. 
So, and, and those areas also seem to have the very aggressive spay-neuter uh, programs in place. So that, we're always, always begging, pleading, spay-neuter. We would love to be put out of business. We really would. Absolutely. I mean, you know, there's many other good deeds you could do with your airplanes. Many. I mean, there's so many things you can think of that need to be moved from point A to point B. I know New York City animal care and control is incredibly stuffed as well. And I guess that goes back to your point of a, of a highly popula- human population tends to mean an overflow of animals. What can people do that are listening I mean, of course, everyone can say, oh, can you, you know, give some money to Wings of Rescue? But there might be people like you who would just like to do something. I mean, do you need more pilots? Well, we always need more pilots. If you have a larger, say, six to eight, ten passenger or bigger airplane, uh, we would love to talk to you. Um, the, our typical transport is a minimum of 600 miles one way. Okay. So for the smaller planes, that's that's a two-day trip to get you know, right, right. Get to your destination and the next day turn around, come back. It just, it's a lot. And not not only that, not only does the person need to probably be retired or independently wealthy because who can take off that amount of time from work? Because that's four days right there or maybe five. But in addition, somebody has to organize what to do with those dogs on the layover. I imagine takes some extra planning. Um, So the, which of those shelters gives helps to fund what you're doing, both the receiving and the providing? Uh, if they can. Uh, not all shelters have the funds to uh, pay for vetting or transport. So that's where the donations really come in to help us out. It, it costs, on the average, about $100 per pet. And, again, that fluctuates with the size of the pet and right. the distance it's flown. But that's where the donations really come in to help us out. And, that's not a lot of money, Cindy. It's really not that bad at all. All things considered, you know, that, that's not much for a whole life. And and mm-hmm. and I'm sure when, the, when gasoline was a fortune, that had to make it harder on you guys to do these flights. I mean, it probably costs half now what it did four or five years ago to, to fly the plane, mm-hmm. right? Sure. Well, keep in mind, it, airplanes are like cars. You know, fuel is just one of the components Good point. of Good point. ownership. It's uh, There's the hangar. There's insurance, there's maintenance, and our, our plane just came out of its annual inspection. And, you know, she's a big plane. It costs a lot of money. Yes. But it's something that has to be done to keep her airworthy and safe. So, again, donations are really what we need. And uh, we none of the board members earn a, uh, are paid a penny in salary. Uh, we're all donating our time basically about 60 hours a week wow. to keep this organization going. Wow. Well, it, it seems like something that would be so inspirational to people because to just look up in the sky and think, I wonder if that plane is stuffed with dogs and cats would be a great feeling for all of us to know yeah. that, that you're taking them to freedom and to happiness. It's really, um, it's a wonderful mission. I'm glad that Yehuda had that vision and I'm really glad that you're one of the most important pieces in, in keeping it going and keeping everybody up in the sky. You fly safe and keep up the good work, and um, I'm going to definitely figure out which of the wonderful shelter directors I spoke to recently um, who definitely has empty cages. So y- you want some empty oh, cages, excellent. right? All right, I'm going to work. We on do. The, I'm going to work <laughs> on the empty cages. Have a great excellent. rest of the day. It's really terrific what you're doing. Wonderful to meet you. And uh, any new things that come up in your world, be sure to get back in touch. We'd love to know your progress. Okay. 
We will do that. Thank you so much. Take care, Cindy. We'll be right back after this quick word with Kathy Nimmer and her book, 2 Plus 4 Equals 1. This show is made possible in part by Precious Cat Litter, owned by Dr. Elsie, a feline-only veterinarian in Colorado who has created innovative litters for the health of all members of the family with low-dust litters that allow everyone to breathe easier. Precious Cat's newest health monitor litter has broken new ground by allowing people to find the early signs of kidney disease in their kitty cats and intervene before damage is done, prolonging the quality and length of a cat's life. This show is also brought to you with the generous support of Nordic Naturals, omega-3 fish oil products that provide dogs and cats with the same premium quality omega-3 fish oils as for people. Research shows that even the best diets are deficient in the essential fatty acids found in omega-3 oils. However, all fish oil is not created equal. The Nordic Naturals difference is that their oil comes from Norway where they use responsibly sourced healthy wild fish and third-party testing to guarantee purity and freshness. I am back with Kathy Nimmer, who's a pretty amazing person. She's an award-winning teacher, author, and motivational speaker from Indiana. In 2006, she won first place in the Helen Keller International Memoir Competition with a book of poetry called Minutes in the Dark, Eternity in the Light. Kathy's written this beautiful book, Two plus four equals one, celebrating the partnership of people with disabilities and their assistance dogs. Um, On your long bio that shows a lot of other things you've won and awards and stuff, Kathy, um, blind due to a rare retinal disease, at first one doesn't think of you as having a disability. You do so much. You work out in the gym. You read mysteries. You follow sports. You have a perfume collection, and you go for long walks with your third guide dog, Elias. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. How did you put? How did you find these marvelous stories written? Either well, the ones written by you, you didn't find. You wrote them. Many you've written, but others were written by the person, poetry or prose, about their relationship with their assistance dog. How did you? How did you know all these people? Did you already know them from your work in the field, or did you put a call out, a braille call out, or a whatever call out, and say? Bring me your heartwarming stories, because the stories are just fantastic, as are, are the poems. I'm so glad you enjoy them. I, I received a grant from the Lilly Foundation, which supports teachers in pursuing a dream that they have always had to do something outside of the classroom that will, that will fulfill them and make them um, more energized and committed to the classroom. And so I, I applied for a a fellowship from them and received it in 2009. And my dream was to create the first ever anthology of stories and poems about people with disabilities and all different types of assistance dogs. There are, there are several things out there about, you know, one partnership or about um, dogs who help people with a certain disability, but the whole blend hadn't been done. And so for 18 months, I worked on that and I created a website and put out um, put out calls for submissions um, to every type of resource I could think of. And one of the options then was that people could submit their own writings, or if they had stories um, that were were profound but they themselves were not writers, they could request an interview, and then I would interview them and then write for them. And that those submissions would go into the pool. And then uh, overall, I received uh, well over three hundred submissions, some of which I wrote, some that had been written by others, and uh, used 
I believe it was four people in the in the disability field to help me narrow it down to the ones who made the cut for the book. So it was quite a process, but a huge learning experience for me and, and a great joy when I was able to step back and look at the final copy. I imagine that your familiarity with guide dogs for the blind and the seeing eye, you knew quite a lot of people who had guide dogs for the blind or for the visually impaired, but maybe not so much about some of these many other organizations um, Texas Hearing and Service Dogs, Assistance Dogs of America, Positive Teams. There's so many amazing organizations, Canine Partners for Life. So many organizations either pairing dogs with people or inspiring people to uh, embrace a dog to help with their disability. Were you surprised by how many groups or were you pretty familiar with a lot of them already? I was incredibly familiar with the with the guide dog movement because right. I had I'd had guide dogs um, from two different schools since 1996, and you know the first ever guide dog school, the Seeing Eye uh, in New Jersey, was you know had been around for so long, and then all of these uh, I believe it's 13 or 14 programs um, now train and support guide dog teams, but I had relatively little experience with all of the um, dozens and dozens and dozens of, of smaller schools that that do uh, work with dogs for other purposes. And so that part was incredibly eye-opening. Of course, I had heard of dogs assisting people with mobility problems and, you know, say in a wheelchair or right. or indicating when a seizure was coming or whatever, but I, I had very little personal experience or um, direct knowledge of those and uh, to learn about all the programs and all the people in different walks of life who who have benefited from such training, it was amazing. It, it, it is inspiring because even with the fame and the, the longevity and the familiarity of guide dogs for the blind and the seeing eye, both of, have you had a dog from each of them? No, I my first two dogs were from Pilot Dogs. Oh, I'll be darned! One of right. one of one of my listeners, Gil. Hey, Gil. He he's all of his dogs have been from Pilot Dogs. He lives awesome. in the Midwest. And, my, yeah. and then I, I uh, my third dog, Elias, who whom you referenced, um, is from Guiding Eyes for the Blind in uh, New York. And I actually now have a fourth one. Um, wow. Elias. Elias recently retired, and now I have Nacho from um, Guiding Eyes as well. It's, it's amazing because the Guide Dog Foundation for the Blind. Now, there's another one that I just, you know, flipped through the book. Right. That sounds like guide dogs or the guiding, but it's not. It's a different organization. No, they, all have, they all have different names, and they're, it's just like colleges in the sense yes, that yes. you research and find the one that's the best fit for you. Um, they, all, they all have very committed staffs and, you know, different sizes or different lengths of training or different approaches. And, um, and, and that was great, uh, being able to talk with graduates and trainers from different schools to, to see that, you know, compare the differences. But the big picture from all of those um, people and dogs I encountered is, is that the partnership becomes more than what either the dog or the person could be alone when they, when they join together and when there's that, that bond that is yielded from hard work and training, uh, it just becomes something magical. And um, not magical in that it's, it's uh, you wave your hands and right, it suddenly right. happens, but it just, it transcends. Emotionally magical, yes. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, it, when you're, your students as a teacher are sighted, right? Yes, 
I, I teach at a public high school. I teach high school English, and all of my students are, are regular public school students. So do your dogs obviously are always with you in the classroom? Yes, I have um, quite a nice uh, cushy memory foam bed behind my desk, <laughs> and it's, uh, it takes up quite, oh, I don't know, it's like two, two foot by three foot or something, and um, they sleep, they, you know, they each sleep um, bed behind my desk, and um, I, you know, I'll pet them in between class or whatever, or sometimes if they're zonked out, I just leave them alone, and, and then we, I harness the dog up. Uh, to go when I need to go to a meeting or, right. or change like lunch or something. Or something like so how do you think it has influenced or affected your students? Of course, hard for you to say because you've only ever been a teacher who cannot see. But do right. you imagine that it influences them, I would oh, hope, in a really positive I, way to have? It does. It does. And I know it does. And I, I mean, I have so many situations that I can think of when when kids have been struggling or when, when I've had some students who are new to the English language and that's very stressful for them to be, you know, immersed yes. in, in an English spoken class. And then I've had students who have, um, you know, who, who are autistic or who have um, other challenges. And it never fails that eventually um, the dog becomes instrumental in someone's life in a way that I could not have um, perceived before. I, I have rules that they can't interact with the dog during class and never without permission. But as the weeks go on and we settle into routine, I, I invite anyone who's a dog person to come before or after class and, and ask to pet the dog. And most of the time I'll say yes. And then those, those amazing moments um, where there's just that connection, that that release of emotion when when somebody pets the soft fur of a dog, those are those are fantastic. And and so he, my dogs, um, who have all been male, there there's a good mix of males and females out there. But I've now had four males. Um, all of my boys have have been able to to minister to some student or another along oh. the way, and in, in, yeah, in ways that we never anticipated. Well, it's, you know, they do say that that having interaction with the dog, whether you're getting chemotherapy or you're in a crowded airport, where I think at some point United Airlines had dogs around for people to pat while they were stressing about their seat assignment. But it's really true that there is a whole chemical, emotional, physiological reaction to having a dog. And being in high school is really stressful. I think anyone that ever did that already or is going to do it or is in the middle of doing it, it's, it's not a totally pleasant experience. So being able to have compassion and awareness of of the challenge of somebody like yourself who clearly has embraced the challenge and risen way above it but it's i think it's a great perspective for kids to have and as well as the the joy of being able to pat the dog so that these assistance dogs in your case are are giving additional love and assistance and support to people who aren't even their charges right Absolutely. And this last year, I was away from the classroom for the whole year. I was um, I was named the 2015 Indiana Teacher of the Year, and I, I traveled and spoke Oh, my year. goodness. Well, and, and the wow. name there was Nacho got to go with me. And so it, his effect on, you know, on, on children and audiences of all ages for a year as we traveled and spoke – was was incredible because yes the dogs always in my classroom and always in my school when when they're walking me through the hallways and all that 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 big impact now this year I was able to do um, an extra dose of 
of touching people's lives through the partnerships that I have with my dogs because I was able to talk about guide dogs and blindness um, and, you know, let the little kids see Nacho work. And yes. it, it, it was fabulous. So, uh, and he, Nacho is a rock star. He is calm. <laughs> He's calm, cool, and collected, especially for a young dog. And um, it was it's wonderful. But every every minute of being with the dogs is is wonderful because they have been trained, and yet they're still dogs. So they're going to you know they're going to be imperfect at times or distracted or whatever. Right. But their their heart and their their knowledge and their desire to be um, an effective and powerful part of the team. It, it matches my desire to be part of that team. And we, we just, uh, I know that my life would not be anywhere near as rich and full without my dog um, as, as, you know, I, I just have known that every time, even when we mess up, you know, even when we get lost or even when um, we, you know, we bump into something at a store, which those things don't happen much, but they're all part of that learning and growing yes. experience. And does that tend to happen when you're first paired with a new dog, a, a kind of a, a knowledge of each other's body language sort of thing? Sure. It, it happens more than um, it happens, you know, periodically for the whole partnership. But it's more that the beginning part that the, most of the guide dog schools tell us that it takes, you know, six months to a year to really gel into a synthesized team. And so that that's, for instance, the dogs are taught um, clearance issues. So, for right. instance, if there is, you know, a cart in the aisle, they need to not just get past it, but they need to move over far Correct. enough that we can get past it, too. Well, judging that, you know, um, takes a while because, oh, the trainers, yeah. you know, the trainers are a different size than we that's are. Right. Or, or I might be carrying a bag, you know, that's yes. making us wider. And, you know, and so things like that just take time. And then then I have to learn to read my dog as well and um, know that if he's slowing down, okay, that could mean that he's super hot or that could mean that there is something coming up that he's walking toward that is blocking our way and he's just anticipating slowing down so that right. we're not walking at full speed and then sudden, suddenly stop and I, like, have whiplash, <laughs> you know. So, yeah, it's a, it's a learning process every day. Every day is like training. Even though we've already graduated, every day is training and becoming better. And having to have all of your senses, other than seeing, on high alert because there's so much to take in and to, for both of you to mm-hmm. sort of collaboratively figure out as you move forward, Right. Right, and you know, and then if it's somebody with a different disability and a dog trained for different things, um, right. they're using those uh, those senses as well. So if there, there's a person who is profoundly deaf who has a hearing dog to alert to um, sounds, say somebody calling um, a, a deaf woman's name, you know, the yes. dog signals, and that person's vision needs to be tuned into that dog. That's right, um, and yeah, so it's 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 all fascinating. It is, and and the book has so many different stories and different aspects of of the partnership with the dog, depending on the disability, and then of course depending on the person's personality. How old was Elias when he? I'm assuming he decided he just didn't want to do this anymore. He was um, the the typical guide dog career is seven to eight years, um, and they're about two or so when they're trained. Right. They're finished training, so that takes them up to nine or ten. And he was um, creeping toward that. Uh, toward that time, around seven years or so, when I was uh, seven years working with me, when I was when I received the Indiana honor, and oh. um, so when things started ramping up as far as my schedule and my um, 
the the pressures that were on me and then um, more flights and more, you know, more extra things. Yes. He, he started pretty clearly saying, uh, yeah, get some <laughs> new young dog to do that. He just, he just lost some of his confidence and he started getting tentative even at stairs or around corners or whatever. And, um, you know, that's another thing, being so in tune with your dog. Yes. You want your dog to be okay. And he was very clearly showing me that his stress uh, was not okay. And so um, it, I, I contacted the school, and, and they were on the lookout for a very calm, steady dog who who would be able to handle all of this, all the travel that I had, you know, on my schedule. And uh, trained with Nacho, and um, Nacho's, Nacho has handled it very well. And, and so Elias, Elias stays at home. He's he. I adopted him to my parents. Oh, um, so yeah. So he's he is just a, a pet now, and I still see him often. Nice. Um, but since you know, service dogs are with their person pretty much twenty four seven, and so when it when it's time for retirement, you want to you want to make sure that exactly. it's it's good for them. And some people yes. do keep their their retired dogs. Um, for me, since I'm out and about so much, Elias is a lot happier being in a house where there's people around all the time and I still get to see him. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense to me that I'm going to be interviewing um, a lady soon. Who's part of, of uh, guide dogs for the blind. She, she has, I think she's on her fourth or fifth dog and herself and, and she works for guide dogs. And I interviewed her in New York about this lovely young dog she had. And she said that her prior dog who still lived with her because in the meantime, she'd gotten married. So there was another person to help, you know, care for the dog. I think she actually right. has two retired ones at home, if that seems possible. Or, oh no, I think she had one that was a that was a, left the program because he, you know, the usual oh. likes birds yes. too much or something. And yeah. she said the same thing as you that he just I, you put the harness on and there was no pep in his step. And it's just fascinating to the rest of us to to wonder at that moment that the dog actually knows I've done this as long as I can and I gave it my all. And I think that is, that's going to be enough for me now. I, I find it very touching, you know, that it they don't, very, they don't, it, it they don't go over touching. a cliff, you know, they don't yeah. like, like just like lose their mind and just keep right. motoring on anyway. They're like, no, thank you. And, and God bless. And yeah, I think right. parents would and, make a great home. And every retirement is different. My first dog worked for 10 years, which was way above the average. Wow. And then he he was quite old then and slowing down and and he he had lymphoma that I did not know about um, when I retired him and so but it, like after, right after he retired he started showing the symptoms and he passed away pretty quickly and I I like to think that he he was game to be in that harness yes. as long as yes. I needed him to yes. and then my my second dog worked for one year because he had oh some, my god um, some medical things come up um, and so. You just never know. But Elias's was, yes, his retirement was very, very touching to me because he, he did everything he could. And then he knew what was what I was asking of him was beyond what he was able to give me. And um, and so he's very happy now as a retired dog. And and Nacho keeps him, <laughs> keeps him active. <laughs> when we come over to visit, Nacho definitely has the youthful play mode going and Elias is like, what in the heck? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think it's great. Your book is marvelous, obviously for anyone 
who knows someone with an assistance dog or someone who might be getting an assistance dog or is even considering it, this is a fantastic book to, to show people and experience the, the wealth of experience, the range of feelings that people have about celebrating the partnership of people with disabilities and their assistance dogs. Kathy, congratulations on these wonderful awards you've won, the wonderful work you do. I'm going to ask you off the air about um, a, a dog for a kid with autism. Someone just wrote to me and said that they were quoted $20,000 for a, an autistic service dog, or that is to say, a service dog for someone with autism, not a dog who has autism. Right. Um, and uh, I, I'm going to check with you off the air because I don't want to you know, take time for something very specific, but I'm sure you know so many organizations now, you'll know if that is in fact an appropriate price or if there's a place that you know is better for, for, the, for that use. Anyway, thanks for your great work. Thanks for joining together all these people and these wonderful dogs and these great organizations doing good. Have a great rest of the day. You too. Take care. We'll be right back after this quick word with Tony Angel and the House of Owls. This show is brought to you with the generous support of Halo, holistic, natural cat and dog foods, which are made from real ingredients you can recognize. Halo uses real meat in their kibble, no rendered byproducts, chicken meal, or chemicals. And their new grain-free recipes, like Vigor, give you even more healthy choices for your pet's dinner, while Daily Greens brings vitamins and digestive enzymes into your dog's diet. Halo is a private company partly owned by Ellen DeGeneres, where they emphasize giving back by making donations to shelters through freekibble.com for pets awaiting a forever home. I am back with Tony Angel and a most gorgeous book. I mean, physically, visually, as well as wonderful things to read and think about. The House of Owls. Just a gorgeous book, and no wonder, because Tony is a beautiful artist, as well as a lover of many many things in nature, but particularly owls. Tony, this book is obviously the result of a life's passionate devotion to owls. I mean, what a, what a great thing to, le- to give to the world. You are an amazing artist. I, 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 just beautiful, beautiful. I love when you say in your, in your preface, oh, if somebody else would like to follow my lead, just get yourself a pencil and sit down and start <laughs> sketching. I'm like, Tony, this is high art. What are you talking about? Well, Tracy, that's kind of you to say. I, my advice uh, has always been uh, that, that half of getting on with being an artist is just going ahead and taking a chance and, and not being afraid that you're going to fall a little bit short. But you're very kind to compliment me and the book and everything else uh, in that fashion, and you're right. Uh, I've had the good fortune to be around birds and wild mammals as well as domestic mammals throughout my life, and they've given a lot to me. Well, what fascinates me about many things do about the book, but in particular the fact that you have lived in close proximity, particularly to this these generations, I guess, of screech owls, mm-hmm. with, when your parents moved to an area in Washington State where they were, I guess, prolific. I had always been under the impression, until I had your book, that owls... You, that people rarely saw them, that they were, of course, they're nocturnal, but I mean that in general, they were kind of hidden and that people rarely saw them and sighting an owl was like sighting of, I don't know, a unicorn. So clearly <laughs> that's not true. Well, no, I think what we typically uh, don't do is uh, patiently wait the owl out because there are all kinds of opportunities that we have because many owls are very adaptive and have learned to live with people 
among them is screech owls in suburban settings. They have been successful picking up everything from insects and mice to uh, even catching fish along the local watersheds. And what we typically need to do to see if there are owls in the neighborhood is listen uh, in the evening. And you can hear them. Uh, Usually in the late winter when the breeding season begins and they're calling back and forth, uh, the other part of it is there are signals all the time that owls are being mobbed by other birds. And I would often find the roosting screech owls uh, around the nesting box by just following the calls of the small passerine birds, the warblers and the chickadees, because they would spot the male owl outside keeping an eye on the nesting box and tell me where he was. And so we can get these signals if we're a little bit patient. And what was the reason that these smaller birds were keeping an eye? I'm sorry, again? Why were the smaller birds keeping an eye on that owl? Because oh, they, the owl well, could eat them, or they wanted to eat the eggs, or the baby owls? I mean, the, because you've studied their behavior the way Jane Goodall studied chimpanzees, so you really understand their relationships and their family structure. Why would a smaller bird be, be keeping a watchful eye on a daddy owl? That's a good question, and I think it's pretty clear that owls are perceived as a threat to the smaller passerines. They don't eat a lot of them, the screech owls, but occasionally they catch them, like a hawk would, would catch a, a right. passerine. Uh, and so by scolding the screech owl, they're basically saying, hey, we see you, uh, you should get out of here, mm-hmm. you're, you know, you're too close to where we nest. And they also, the other interesting thing to me, Tracy, is they introduce the next generation of uh, their, their kin to what an owl is. They direct their ire to the owl, the young birds that are generally naive. They begin to say, aha, you know, that's something to be afraid of. I'll keep my distance. That's that's a really good point. One one of the most beautiful to me, your drawings look like wood carvings almost. Uh, They're just so, they they are so 3D. Um, And there's one, um, Owls in Company with People, It's it's the beautiful drawing that goes with that chapter. And it says, a pair of barn owls perched in rafters. And you look at it, it's gorgeous. And you look more carefully because it's gray on gray on gray. And Uh it has a giant mouse, almost a rat in his mouth. You don't mention that in your caption of the photo. I mean, I'm calling it a photo because it's it's so realistic. But of the drawing, it's so funny. So there they are. So, So one of them looks like the bigger one, probably the guy has caught this gigantic mouse. Is he going to share that with somebody? What is their usual behavior when they do catch mice? They, they do a little bit of both. They share, uh, the, the male will typically uh, take uh, a courtship gift to the female when they're in courtship and deliver a, a food product. Ah. And, uh, but the two of them will routinely, of course, feed their youngsters. And in the case of the barn owl, Literally, they will consume thousands of rats and mice that otherwise would be, you know, in our rafters and yes. uh, in our basements, and they're doing us such a great favor. And again, we often overlook it because we don't even know the owls are out there doing their job, uh, I could say, their job of survival and doing something for us. But the, the, uh, uh, you brought up an interesting point. The drawing itself, or all the drawings, I was seeking to convey information and ideas that the observer could respond to without necessarily putting a lot of narrative in. I see. And they see that, in this case, this very large mammal that uh, the barn owl has caught. Uh, 
they can begin to understand, okay, this is a very serious predatory owl. It's doing something with it, and then they can carry on in the rest of the book and pick up the information if they wish. So that's why I enjoy illustration so much. Well, and yes, it is sort of like a little snapshot, and then it intrigues the, the reader to be like there the naturalist go. that's out in the, in the woods with you. One of the things that, that is perplexing about owls is the different way that they are perceived in different societies. Oh, yeah. Um, in our society, as I understand it, I say, I, I guess, I mean, I don't know if I mean just you know, Western America or something. I mean, Western as opposed to East Eastern religion or something. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. I thought they were viewed as very good luck and having an owl living near your house was viewed as good luck. And I had some Guatemalan people who said, oh my God, an owl is an absolute sign of death. If there's an owl near a house, there is going to be a death. And they were just like, you know, praying that this wouldn't happen. It really was like so spooky to them. Such a different such an incredibly different perception of an owl culturally. How does that come about, do you think? Well, that's a a bit of a mystery. I I think to some degree one can imagine that during a period of plague or disease, uh, owls are about calling at night. Of course, night remains to be a mysterious part of that 24-hour cycle to us. And they associated with the, the call of the owl with whatever malady they were going through. It was like when the plague hit, uh, there were a lot of other species that were blamed for the plague, including crows, uh, when in fact what they were doing was they were scavenging. They right. were not the cause right. of, the, of the plague. So you, you get this myth that begins to build uh, around the occurrence of an owl call at the time of death, and then it perpetuates oh, I itself see. crows. But quite the contrary, as you point out, other cultures see them as uh, uh, birds to celebrate because yes. the other culture sees what they're doing. Well, I, I remember, but only faintly, but you being the owl man will obviously probably remember this better than I, but my father having spent a good part of his adult life at the side of Ernest Hemingway and having written about him on numerous occasions, there was an owl who was a pet of Ernest, it seems to me, lived, a, I mean, there's a whole story, a long story about this owl that was his pal, his cohabitator, kind of, I guess, like you, having owls living right nearby and interacting in a kind of friendly yeah. way. Did you was not know that? I've heard about that. I Cuba or Idaho or goodness only knows where. Oh, I can, it could, it, I can one find out. Yeah, I'll find yeah. out and I'll let you know, but I thought, oh, for sure, Tony will already know about the Hemingway owl lore because it was quite a long involved story of this owl having great meaning to him somehow or other. Uh, then again, he ran around shooting pheasants, you know, so, mm-hmm. I, and, and, and anything else that, you know, while in, in Africa. <laughs> so I don't know how much of a, of a lover of natural things he was. He sort of I got the impression, uh, Tracy, that he did have uh, a very broad and, and reverential respect for other species that he didn't hunt, but he was definitely a, a, a very committed uh, hunter and, no question about that. But, yeah, in this literature, you you pick up that uh, sense of uh, complexity that he saw in nature. And the owl story, I'm sorry, I, I, I'm, well, I'm not sorry at all. I'm delighted that you bring that up because I had heard something like that. 
but I wasn't familiar with it, and I'll certainly be on the lookout for it. Well, I'll, I'll get you more scoop from my dad, who's Please. missing 100, and his memory's better than mine, if you can believe it. So, well, I congratulations will, I know, to him. That, <laughs> I know, I'll say, God, if only, if only we all could remember things so well. There's a lot about the different kinds of owls, and, and um, that's something I think that most of us are not that aware of. Because I think we just mostly think of the barn owl in that strange and marvelous way that its head seems to rotate 360 sure. degrees like the exorcist without its body moving. But screech owls are the owls that you learned the most about and had the nesting box in, in growing up. What is the, are those the two most common or well-known from, a, from a kind of like visually, a screech owl and a barn owl? I, I think uh, that that would be correct, that both the screech owl barn owl, and I would also add the barred owl, uh, that is very common uh, on the east coast uh, of North America, and now uh, becoming more common up here now that it's moved across the continent. Those, those three particular owls, although, you know, you go down to the southwest, and they have an abundance of very small owls, and that's the other part of what is so intriguing to me, is the diversity of owl species yes. from some that are no larger than a sparrow to some that are as large as small eagles and they uh have been able to i guess the best word is to use and exploit habitats ranging from tropical rainforests to the driest hottest deserts on earth and uh, that speaks well to the richness of that whole group of birds and are, are there other people like you who, for whom owls are a particular fascination? I mean, is there a little group of you within ornithologists, if that's the right word? I mean, are, are there, is it a, like a, a subset of, of bird lovers, watchers, and defenders and explainers? I think, I think that that, I'm half laughing here because in the course of time that I've been interested in owls, I've seen this accelerated <clears throat> interest in these birds uh, uh, manifest itself in both groups. Uh, there's a group, I think they have a celebration in Minnesota every year uh, around owls, and they present uh, the prize every year for the person that's done the most for owls. Really? Really, yeah, I can get you the name of that group. I'll, I'll forward that to well, you. There's no point because they're not going to invite me as a member. I mean, I'm just the dope like everybody else. I hear <laughs> hoot, 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 and I go, oh, my God, there's an owl out there. You know, and yeah. I, I love the sound of it. It drives my dogs absolutely bonkers. That particular sure. sound, they, they're convinced, must be, you know, mastodons reentering the universe and coming to. Oh, yeah. It's yeah, very yeah. haunting, isn't it? It's it is indeed. I mean, that's, again, we go back to what we were saying earlier, how people developed a fear of owls. Some of their calls are, are fear-inducing. Yes. You wonder, whoa, what's out there, you know, in the darkness? I yes. Can't, I can't go out and face it. So that's probably uh, how they, they got scared that way. Um, do all of them have that swivel head of Well, capacity? yeah, they, they, they have some extra vertebra that we do not have, which allows them to go about... 270 degrees, not quite. I was kidding. But, I mean, it yeah, is rather yeah. remarkable the few times that one gets to see it. It's like, wow, that's quite, yeah, a, yeah. that's quite a mechanism that's allowing that to happen. Well, yeah, and then they snap it back the other direction so quickly, you know, that you, you might not, you blink and you miss it when right. they go back and you think they've gone all the way around. Yeah. Oh, I see. That gives, is a false, is a, it's a false illusion that that's what's happening. Um, do the screech owls make a screechy noise? Is that how they got their name as opposed to it, hoot? 
Yeah, yeah. The eastern screech owl has a bit of a screech, uh, and the western screech owl, which is a, a different species, glaciation, you know, thousands of years ago separated the single species and one became one and the other became the other. The western screech owl has that hooting little trill call that's typical. But the eastern screech owl has a little bit of a, of a screech, not so pronounced that, you know, it would be like the screeching of a barn owl right. in darkness, but uh, definitely a bit of a screech. Uh, the owls have, just like their size and the way in which they operate, uh, some owls actually operated daytime uh, routinely. Uh, most of them, however, are uh, at twilight or in total darkness, total darkness to us anyway. Right. And, and their calls, likewise, are different. And, you know, Tracy, one of the reasons that calls are different is the way in which they can move through their habitat uh, in, a, in a purposeful way. A higher-pitched call or a frequency that, that we might not perceive can go through a thick forest in such right. a way that they can hear, hear each other. Uh, even uh, some owls have a ventriloquist uh, tw- uh, twist to their calls so that they can remain secluded if you know they're in a habitat where they themselves could be hunted, but they're not easily found. So there are a lot of really aspects to owl vocalizations that you know we're still learning a lot about. And that's the great thing about living long enough and science moving forward is mm-hmm. that things that we just thought, well, that's just simple and a superficial uh, behavior or ability – you're probably going to discover a whole lot more as you continue to be fascinated by them in in just how complex and brilliant their skills are. And they certainly couldn't have survived this long and have made so many different versions of themselves, if you will, right. if they weren't awfully good at a lot of things. Are they so in comp- it just we, we only have another minute or so, but are they in competition with hawks and other birds of prey? Are they all in competition for that one furry mouse down there? Well, yes and no. Uh, hawks will eat some of the same things owls will. They'll catch them at uh, day, daytime hours. The I hawks see. Will. The owls will catch them at night. And, and as you know, probably the owls have all this capacity to hear things that we can't even begin to hear, and they can capture things in darkness because of that ability to see in very low light levels as well as hear sounds. Hawks don't do that. They That's rely right. on, you know, a diurnal kind of condition to hunt. So there's not much competition there unless right. some hawks are out when owls are out. It that makes time. sense. That makes sense. Well, your appreciation and fascination and admiration for owls really comes through in the House of Owls. Thank you so much for writing this book. Thank you to uh, Yale University Press for publishing it, it in such a beautiful way. And keep up the good work. Keep us Keep us alert to any new new changes in the owl world. We want to be amongst the first to know. And I'll let you know about that Hemingway owl story as soon as I track it down. Terrific, terrific, thanks, Tracy. It's thanks been a, a lot. great have, pleasure. Have a great Bye-bye. rest of the day. Bye-bye. Thank you all for listening. Kiss kitties, hug pooches, and wave to any owls you may see up in the trees. We'll talk again next week. <laughs>